Hey Blenders, on this week's show, Loki Season 2 is here. We are going to review The Exorcist Believer, and director Nanachka Khan joins us to discuss the new time travel slasher, Totally Killer. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun? Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hello, Blenders, and welcome. Welcome to episode number 282 of Real Blend, a podcast that sent Jake Hamilton to go be Speaker of the House for a little while. We want Kevin <laughs> McCarthy back on our show, for God's sakes. Leave <laughs> him alone. How have your mentions been, Kev? Oh, brutal. Absolutely brutal. brutal. Um, yeah, I, w- I woke up to one in particular this morning that made me laugh that was really disturbingly graphic. Um, that I, 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 yeah, for people who don't know, I get I get hate tweets for my name being Kevin McCarthy, so I've just responded with movie reviews over the years. It started off with I think years ago with like Jake Tapper's show or something like tweeted. Well, me and to clarify, people mistaking mistaking you for former Speaker of the yes. House, not just your name, right. but they just they tag right. you thinking this must be this and must scream be at him and, and scream. Yeah, at you. I yeah, will say, Kevin. Good, yeah. We in prep for the show today. I wanted to watch your Tom DeLonge interview, um, and it's you cannot search Kevin McCarthy on YouTube right now. It's, just, it's impossible. Yeah, and you yeah, can't well, search so- Tom DeLonge either because so much stuff comes up. So yeah, somebody tweeted me the. Uh, I think they were like saying that it was, it was my fault. Uh, you know, I'll 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 just read a quick one of these real fast. So someone tweeted me. They go. The uh, the only one person to blame for the shutdown at Kevin McCarthy TV. He's waited 10 hours before <laughs> shutdown to vote. Uh, hashtag Democrats wanted 90 minutes to read it. Normally 72 hours. Kevin said no. So I responded saying that I'd seen Oppenheimer eight times. And uh, and that's why I hadn't had time to deal with that uh, particular <laughs> subject in the government. So um, uh, uh, I was busy, man. I was busy. Well, it's been a wild week. <laughs> All right. On this week's show. Hello. Welcome, everybody. We're going to be doing uh, Loki season two. Quick reaction to the first episode. I've been lucky enough to see a couple of them. I will keep all the spoilers out of it. Uh, Kev is going to review The Exorcist Believer. And then our guest this week, uh, I've been sort of teasing out that there's been this upcoming slasher film that I'm a huge fan of. It is called Totally Killer. And the director is Nanachka Khan, who is lucky enough to join us for a very fun interview. We were lucky to have her on for a very fun interview. Uh, on behalf of her new film, Totally Killer. Uh, we have already introduced Kevin McCarthy, but I'll give him his official uh, Kevin McCarthy of Fox 5 in Washington, D.C. Hello, my friend. How are you? Uh, hello. Good afternoon to both Sean and, and Gabriel. And uh, yeah, obviously, Jake is uh, not here today. We miss you, buddy. And uh, looking forward to having you back next week. And and also, uh, we have some really good interviews coming up. So stay tuned. And there's a new bonus episode, which I think Sean will mention later on in the yes. show. So stay tuned. Yeah, that's very true. Uh, you should go to our YouTube channel uh, and check that out. But before we get to that, sitting in the big boy chair, Gabe Kovach, sitting in for Jake Hamilton, who is uh, tied up right now at the moment. So that's hey, true. That's true. A little bit of scheduling conflict, but I will do my best to fill his incredibly handsome, well-dressed shoes. You're off yeah, to a good start. Definitely. Yeah. 
I'll say that much. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> if you're watching us on YouTube, hello. Thank you very much for joining us. Head down, give us a like and a subscribe. Uh, hit the comments. Let us know where you're listening to from and uh, give us some feedback on the episode. And of course, the interview, which you guys will get to hear in a second. Uh, if you're listening on audio and want to see a visual element of the show, go to youtube.com backslash real blend podcast. Of course, the show is available all the different places you get your podcast needs met. Uh, you guys also have the opportunity to sign up for real blend premium quick plug for that it gives you an ad-free version of the podcast and a newsletter from me this is a newsletter week yep. i'm pretty sure yep, yep, uh, yep. so you'll have one in your inboxes mm -hmm. on friday so check the description for information on where to sign up kev mentioned a bonus episode that we dropped on all of our platforms in the middle of the week and it was a conversation with brian duffield where he joined us to talk spoilers for his incredible film um, no one will save you. I, I, I keep wanting to say no one can save you. <laughs> Very specifically, it is no one will save you. And it stars Caitlin Deaver uh, as a girl who is going through a home invasion of sorts. I'm, I'm not even going to give details because I'm, there's a possibility people are listening to this and haven't yet seen it. It's on Hulu. It's available for streaming right now. Go press play on it right now. It's terrific. Uh, and then go listen to our conversation with Duffield because he's a really up and coming talented director. And, um, He's going to be great. He has, yes. a gr he has a great story about meeting with uh, Marvel and not getting a job. I'll say that. Yeah. I'll, I'll that. It's so, is that what you were going to say, Kev? It's so good. No, my favorite thing. So we always joke with Sean about like how he'll watch like these masterpiece films, but he'll watch them on like TNT or sci-fi. <laughs> so yeah. and and what and again, I understand that, you know, everybody has their way of watching and, and, and it comes down to what you have in your home. If you have physical media or not or streaming and I, I get the streaming uh, are, is very expensive. But the way Sean watches this, when you watch something on TNT, TNT or sci-fi like big logos pop up about what's coming up next or like there's commercial breaks so Sean brought up the fact that Hulu has a commercial service which is commercial really breaks. an interesting thing this is this was probably my favorite question of the interview because I was I was genuinely interested in knowing this too when I read Sean's questions for a little behind the scenes we send an email thread to each other throughout the day when we're doing an interview and we go through our questions and I pay for the 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 higher Hulu, I guess, or whatever, the one that doesn't have commercials. But Sean brought that up and it was a really interesting bit to, to hear him talk about this. So uh, I won't spoil his answer. But if you're fascinated to know how a filmmaker feels about commercial breaks, if they have any involvement and in where those breaks are, what the science kind of goes behind the scenes, with the studios of like when you jump into a break and when you don't, because there's two of them in the film. Um, so that to me was a really fascinating aspect. So if you it's, get a chance, check it out. It's really it's cool. It's a really interesting insight because I think, as he mentions, every streamer is moving to that. Disney, I think, is testing that, or I don't know if they've announced a date yet. I know Netflix has been testing that outside mm -hmm. of the U.S. markets, and I believe has confirmed that they're doing it. It seems like an inevitability, um, but it's a really interesting insight with someone who's like making a film right now and dealing with those decisions yeah. of what we might well, expect. And we were having a conversation in our cinema blend editorial staff about whether when you sit down on the couch to just kind of watch something, will you go to a streaming service that doesn't have commercials? Mm. Um, be, if you're just going to look to put something on that's distracting and I'm telling you this much, I will. I know that my HBO max doesn't have commercials i can burn right. through an episode of something but just to give you an example i wanted to get back into that welcome to Wrexham uh with a new season coming up and hulu had it built in 
that I feel like I was watching legitimately a minute and a half of content <laughs> and then another block of commercials. And it was driving yeah. me crazy. I couldn't even stay with it. It broke at like the weirdest possible places and went to a commercial a I, commercial block. Yeah, yeah I think and it's going to be a growing. We, sorry, I think it's going to be a growing pain for sure, because I think that the what's going to win at first is what's going to make the most money. And then what's going to make the most money is going to be really anti consumer, really anti audience. Mm. And I assume it's going to have to hit a balance where. Ultimately, which I think has been the joke for a while, we're just going to go back to cable. These are all getting right. so expensive. We're all going to have to buy bundles to get more of them. And they're all going to have commercials. Yeah. And they're going to be like, what if these were channels that you could just flip up and down and decide? Which <laughs> it's like, it's, it's, uh, it's all coming back together. So Nanashka Khan's film, however, is not on Hulu. It is on Amazon Prime. Um, and so I don't know if it has commercials in it. I was able to see a screener of it, but um, it's Ooh. fantastic. You can watch it straight Prime through. I don't think so. No, if you pay oh. for Prime, you probably get an ad for your version of the footballs. Movie. Footballs now on Prime, and they have commercials they in build that in their regard. Commercials? Yeah, okay. but that's like it's built yeah. in the TV timeouts yeah. and everything. That's part of the, the entertainment Good of point. That. But yep. this film is called Totally Killer. Um, I will give you the premise. It's part of the trailer. It's uh, essentially a cross of John Carpenter's Halloween and Back to the Future. Um, where a teenage girl goes back in time to 1987 and has to help her high school mom uh, stop a serial killer who is going to about to unleash on their town. And um, Gabe and I were talking about a bit that it has that sort of happy death day vibe to it. It's got a little bit like freaky, the Vince Vaughn one where he swaps places with Catherine Newton. Um, it's just really fun and clever. And the Nachka is um a very f clever director who comes from uh, TV and, and sitcom work and comedy and applies a lot of those skills to horror. And from the minute that I saw this movie on a screener, I knew uh, that it, I really personally wanted you to get her on it. the show. It's yeah. so terrific. Um, so Sean we'll talk about it on the other vocal. side. Yeah. yeah, we'll talk about it on the other side. But in the meantime, um, go watch Totally Killer and listen to our interview with Nanachka Khan on behalf of her brand new movie. Seriously, we both love, love, love the film. Sean sent me a text message uh, after he saw it that basically said, dude, this this is your kind of film. This is very much your jam. So seriously, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me, truly. I'm so of happy course. when I get licensed to nerd out. Yes, yes. <laughs> uh, you have a lifelong license to nerd out. I'm going to start us off. Um, I want to talk about, I guess, that those of us who were lucky enough to grow up on the VHS slasher movies of the 80s and the whole experience of going to the video store. I always say, you know, like kids today, they, they'll never know the anxiety of running into a video store, hoping that the video is there or going into the, the, the bin where like the return videos used to go and like digging through to see if the movie was there. I was just wondering if you could just talk to me about your experience of going to the video store as a kid and, and, and how much that experience, which is kind of extinct now, uh, maybe shaped who you are as a filmmaker today. Absolutely. I think that, I mean, even you telling that story just like brings me back to that time, you know, and like, like begging your parents to take you as soon as you got out of school. Like for us, it was Fridays and they're all busy or people are working or whatever. But you're like, if we don't go right now, we're not going to get, you know, uh, back to the future or whatever. Yeah. Like it's going to be rented. We're not gonna be able to see it. And so then convincing somebody to take you running into the store and like seeing the picture, but then having to make sure, cause that's, you know, that's a psych out. Cause there's like the video, the tapes aren't behind it. It's already been rented. Then having to run to the counter and be like, can I check the return bin? Or have you have you restocked the shelves? And they're either like, they're like, get out of here, kid. Or they're like, no, we haven't. You know, it, it depends if, they, if they're if they cool or not. 
but yeah, I mean, that was like a real, like a, it was like a land grab, you know, you were just like <laughs> fighting for your life out there. And, um, it like made, made her, you know, m- like you either had a good weekend or a bad weekend, depending on what you 100%, were hundred percent or a hundred percent. And it isn't a bummer that like kids today, like you just press play. It's just, it's just there. It's always there if you want it. And like, it's just, it's not fair. I know. Same thing with music though. Right. Like, now we all just go on Spotify. We can listen to whatever you want. It's great to have the access. Uh, like, I'm not going to lie, but going, you know, to the record stores and like finding the the thing that you want. I don't know. Like all of that is record. You remember the packaging for a CD was like a giant past plastic sleeve that just had the CD at the top. What a waste. Good thing, by the way. Otherwise, I would have stolen so many. Like, I feel like that, that was to prevent me from shoplifting. <laughs> All right. I'm going to build off of the idea of CDs um, because I love the fact that your film uses actual 80s songs and not like 80s inspired riffs, you know, with some synthesizer. Because uh, my wife and I were watching it on the screener and whenever a new one came up, whether it was like Venus or some such thing, she kind of chuckled to herself because it really set the tone. And there are these 80s songs that like you hear Cruel Summer and you think of Karate Kid kind of thing. But we know how and speaking with filmmakers, how difficult it can be to get the licensing to be able to use those songs. Was it an uphill battle for you to get the songs that you wanted? Yeah, you know, it's always about music. I've never had an experience uh, where you're like, oh, we're, we have money left over in music or like, you know what, they, <laughs> they budgeted too much money for music. It's like, that's never the case, you know, because it's so important and it's important in, you know, every project specifically, but in this one to set the tone. I mean, as soon as she lands in the 80s, you have to, it has to be an iconic site. It has to be something recognizable, as you say, like, it can't be like inspired by or a riff or something. Um, so yeah, I mean, you know, it's it's a constant fight um, to just get more. And look, like I would have had ten more if I could have, you know. But I think um, being able, you know, having a cap on that is also good because it doesn't then become just like the series of like, oh, that was a great song. Um, but yeah, it's it's quite important for sure. Yeah, I can imagine. Uh, I want to talk about the characters just straight up name dropping and addressing Back to the Future. And I guess what I want to ask about is like, one, when you're dealing with time travel, is it better to just go ahead and get it like, yes, let's just go ahead and discuss Back to the Future because it's the best that's ever been done. And then also, what is that balance of characters in movies talking about other movies? Like, how far can you push that before it becomes almost like winking at the camera? Totally. Yeah, that was a really important line for us to walk. So it doesn't feel like, you know, any character could turn and wink, as you say. But I think for us, like the idea of Totally Killer, where this Gen Z woman goes back, you know, this 2023 person goes back in time to 87, um, armed with all of our reference points. So she's got all of our, you know, all the entertainment that she's consumed to be able to like talk about this time travel thing. And the, the idea would just be like, like if we all went back in time, how would you try to convince somebody that that's what happened without sounding crazy? And it's like, I'm not a scientist. I'm not a physicist. So I wouldn't have like a chalkboard scene moment where I'm like breaking that down. But I would say, have you seen back to the future? You know, have you, <laughs> have you seen that? So it's like using that as our, like as our currency, I guess. Um, just kind of made sense for her <laughs> to try to get people on board. Well, I, I like that. that we're savvy enough as an audience to 
that you could suggest that things that she's doing in the past is changing, you know, instantaneously changing things in the present day. And we've all seen enough to know that, like, oh, yeah, that's kind of how it would happen. But nobody knows. That's right. Nobody knows. It's like now, you know, we we now know such thing as like the multiverse and all that sort of thing. Right. But like so it's like time is existing on multiple planes all at once or whatever. So in this like one timeline, if she's going back, I like that we were able to cut back to 2023 and sort of see the effects of that in real time in our movie as well. It just made me realize like how much like how much like facts we know through movies like, oh, like if you stand in front of a T-Rex, don't move and it can't see you, which I don't think is true at all. I think like they made that up. But like how many things we think we know just because we saw them in a movie that one time. For sure. We're all dinosaur experts because of that. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. (laughs) Yeah. Nanaska, one of the things that I'm using this junket essentially as a way to ask questions about 80s horror movies that I just love and never got a chance to question. And I'm assuming you absorbed a lot of them as you went through this. Um, And one of the things I think people think about 80s horror films is that they, you know, they they assume they're not well made, you know, that they sort of just churn these out uh, specifically to make a bunch of sequels to franchises. But um, I want to ask if you think that that's a misconception and if there's a franchise in particular from the 80s that you do think really pushed the envelope as you were, you know, maybe borrowing a few different things to work into this. I think it's definitely a misconception. And I think that that you can tell by the longevity of those movies and how popular they remain, you know, and I think like every not even just every Halloween, but the franchises they've launched, there's something about them that even present day keeps us engaged and not just us, but wanting to show, you know, kids or your nieces or your nephews and wanting to expose them to something that just like hits all the right notes and i think it's the idea of i think as a society we've always been obsessed with killers Mm -hmm. we are currently obsessed with like psychopaths and killers and people who operate outside of the confines of the norm and then what those filmmakers did back in the eight in 70s and 80s um just kind of gave a new spin on so it's not maybe ted bundy or whatever but it's michael myers you know and you give him this backstory and you put a mask on him and he can't be killed and he keeps coming and he doesn't stop. And it's like, you know, it's, I guess it's that like kind of bridging of reality versus fantasy and, you know, taking it into a heightened place. And, you know, the Friday the 13th franchise being another one and that sort of misleading. We talked about, you know, uh, the first the first iteration of the Friday franchise being different from the ones after that. Um, but yeah, I, I think it's that idea of, crossover from reality to fantasy and just the there's something satisfying you know and you want this guy to die but you also are like oh my god like all the kills are so gruesome they're done amazingly well you know there's camera work in the in those movies that have been you know borrowed and stolen and taken into other genres since you know and and a lot of it is you know, they didn't have a ton of money for like, I'm thinking of that first evil dead that, you know, the Sam Raimi shot with like a flying through the thing. And it's like, that's, you know, he figured that out. And like how many movies have, you know, I mean, it's, it's really impressive. Absolutely. Yeah. True. Sean, I told a story earlier and and it seriously made my girlfriend, Adrian, look at me like, what is wrong? We were at a spirit Halloween and there was a, uh, she's like, oh, do you want that poster? Cause she knows how much I love Friday the 13th, but it was a Friday the 13th poster with Jason in the hockey mask. And I was like, no, cause that's wrong. 
And she was like, what are you talking about? I was like, oh, Jason. it was from yeah. the first movie? Like, yeah, yeah. It was the, uh, the first, first, like, it was the logo from the first movie, but it was Jason in the hockey mask. I was like, he's not full grown in, in part one. That's and just dumb. Uh, yeah, and he doesn't get a hockey mask till part three. And she was like, what the hell is wrong with you? Like, what, like, all, only you, you. only wrong with you, you would come yeah. um, So I do, I kind of <laughs> went to everybody there and was then like, does anybody care it's, about the dots? It, it, and, also, and also, they used an image of Freddy from, from Freddy's Dead, but like for the, but with the original Nightmare on Elm Street logo. And I was like, this, that makes me want to claw my face that's, off. That's no pun intended. Yeah, it really was. It really was. Uh, I kind of want to swing back to the 80s because talking about my girlfriend my girlfriend has an eight-year-old daughter and sometimes i will say things where she'll look at me and be like what the hell are you talking about i i think the other day i referenced like having to rewind a movie and she was like i don't know what that means i don't know you know so i'm sort of curious a lot of the cast members obviously were not alive in the 80s were there anything was there anything about that decade that you kind of had to sit down and be like okay well in the 80s we had to do this <laughs> i mean definitely the technology i would say it was like the that sort of uh vibe initially i came in like with all these like reference movies, like the, all these horror movies or whatever. And not only had they seen them all, but they then started like pitching other ones back to me. They were like, have you seen? Love that. Like, okay. So like flip that tables turned. I was like, I left with homework, which was love great. that. I mean, I'm telling you this gens like all these kids, like they know so much, they have access to so much. Um, but the technology was, was definitely, I remember talking about Walkmans, um, with one of the cast members and them being like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And they pulled up a picture of a disc man. And I was like, no, no, that's like the net. That's like Walkman 2.0. Like everybody, you know, was excited for the disc, disc man because it was not the Walkman, but yeah. So I think technology was, was a real, uh, kind of one we had to kind of figure out on some level. It's a really funny sequence where they hand the the bloody rag over to the police and they're like, this has his DNA. <laughs> yes. It's like not that long ago. And all of a sudden you're like, why can't you just process this? No. And like also, like if you had to describe like, again, it's like if somebody asked me, like, what is DNA? I'd be like, it's a. You know, we all you know, have, you know, yeah, like, <laughs> it's only I have mine and you yeah, have your, like yeah. whatever. And there's a system and we're all entered into the <laughs> right. Just run it. Just all run right. the DNA samples. So um, Vernon, I'm going to assume is is a nod to Principal Vernon from the Breakfast Club and uh, the leather tasseled jacket I've learned is Sloan's, you know, modeled after Sloan Peterson from Ferris Bueller. And But I'm curious, what's the most obscure uh, 80s movie reference that you worked in that you think you'd have to be like a diehard to even pick up on it? Oh, my gosh. I mean, they're just the most obscure one. I don't know. I mean, the, the Vernon one is pretty obscure. Um, <laughs> You know, the uh, there we have we had a, a joke from uh, one of the characters about like um, the first microchip ever invented. And that was like a really there was a little repo man um, reference in the design. Of that. <laughs> nice. so I, I don't cool. even know if you're going to be able to see it, you know, but I don't know. Maybe if you enhance. I'll take enhance. that one. <laughs> That's pretty cool. <laughs> um, I've got to tell you, Sean just corrected me. He and I were, were talking uh, before the interview and I referenced uh, the Max Headroom mask. And he goes, no, that's not that's not Max Headroom. And I was like, wait, really? I thought that was. A so can you tell me the design of the mask? And, and it's not Max Headroom. No, no. So it's um, 
the idea for the mask was, you know, wanting something that obviously originated in the 80s, but then, you know, in our movie, people still dress up as the killer today. Mm -hmm. So wanting it to feel relevant still and also nostalgic. Mm -hmm. Um, And so we decided on the idea of like a, uh, a handsome man being terrifying. And so we started to pull. So Tony Gardner and Alterian, who are the mask design uh, company, uh, started pulling 80s heartthrob references. And so they pulled um, Dolph Lundgren. We pulled Kiefer Sutherland. We pulled Rob Lowe. Pulled a little <laughs> Johnny Bravo in there. Uh, you know, there's a little like a lot of different little pieces. And then we got like the Lost Boys earring, you know, a little nod to the a little lightning bolt and yeah, just kind of an, a, an amalgam of like a bunch of reference points there. Love that. Now, have you heard the Max Headroom comparison though? Yeah. I mean, definitely. Like, I think that that was the two um, comparisons or whatever, the two references that were not humans were like Max Headroom and Johnny Bravo. Okay. Too. Yeah. A lot of Billy Zopka in there too. I can kind of spot. Oh, that's a good call. But, oh but the Dolph Lundgren is without a doubt. Uh, what's going on to there. Um, I want to talk a bit about uh, editing for horror uh, versus editing for comedy and how, you know, a lot of times you're going after the punchline beat, you know, versus the obvious scare. And I don't think what I love about Totally Killer is that it doesn't have those cheap jump scares. You know, it it's it, it has these things that sort of get you out of uh, out of left field, you know, where you're not really expecting them to come. And I think that that comes from the editing process. Is that accurate? That's absolutely accurate. Yeah, for sure. And I think, you know, what I found in the edit and Jeremy Cohen, who is our editor, is amazing. And, you know, coming from a comedy background, you know, you have those comedy rhythms that are um, set up and pay off and then bringing this sort of genre stuff in and not wanting to go for the cheap scare. The cheap scare to me is on a comedy edit rhythm um and the actual scares the thing that makes you actually jump and come out of left field is when you you off rhythm edit so what's great about a genre mashup is you have the the rhythmic comedy set up and payoff and you're you're going along you're like oh this is funny and randall park yeah dna and then suddenly uh once you change the editing pace uh we can sort of start to surprise you so like where you think the scare would come mm-hmm. It doesn't come. It either comes before that or after that, you know, and it just keeps you kind of off balance. And then so Nanashka, how important was it to be able to screen in front of like an, an audience at Fantastic Fest to to get a sense of how those beats hit? So huge, especially at a place like Fantastic Fest, because they're, you know, so well versed in the genre, you know, sure. they they have so many great reference points. And then to just watch it, you know, with the audience who had never seen, you know, any part of it. They're not involved in it. They're just purely there um, to experience this movie. And it was so satisfying to see. So I I have a bit of a chicken or the egg follow up. Whenever you have a movie that kind of has a little bit of horror, a little bit of comedy, do you start with a comedy and make it scary or do you start with a horror film and make it funny? Uh, for this, I started with the comedy for sure. Oh, interesting. I wanted to lead, I wanted you just because of the way the movie unfolds, because we also have time travel as well, you know, mm-hmm. so it's horror comedy time travel. And so I wanted to invite you into this world where anything can be possible, I think. And so I wanted to almost lull you in a little bit to be like, okay, like it's, you know, some mother daughter, you just kind of rude to her mom, whatever. So then when the first 
fight, the big sequence happens at the beginning of the movie that kind of launches us. It kind of takes you by surprise, you know, as opposed to starting moody and dark and, you know, something menacing is coming and you're just waiting for when I just wanted that to feel like a kind of hard left. And so kind of bringing you into a lighter world, taking a hard left. And then also the idea of anything being possible, because then we also have to introduce time travel. So it's like, okay, <laughs> you know, then, then that is, is, you know, something that can exist and happen in our world as well. You know, this movie should not work as well as it does. Like, I feel like when you say these things, like if I, if I hadn't seen the movie and heard that answer, I'd be like, what the hell movie is this? But it really does. It really does work. Um, I, I guess I want to ask without getting into spoilers, Robert England once told me that uh, when he played Freddy, he kind of purposely kept his uh, distance from the kids. Uh, Kane Hodder told me the same thing when he played Jason, Bill Skarsgård with It. Um, I'm just sort of curious about the, uh, I guess the the actor who plays uh, the, the mass killer, because I know oftentimes it's not the actual person who's the killer in the film. Is there a distance between the two or uh, does it just, are they all kind of hanging out at lunch? I think, you know, it's, it, the way we approach it here is sort of taking that actor aside and just running through the script in terms of like the killer's mindset. Mm -hmm. So even, you know, whatever scenes this person is in, like, where are you emotionally and how much of it do we show? How much of it do we, you know, keep to ourselves? Um, because I think part of it is not knowing who it is, you know, so there's not like an instant oh my God, it's this person, you know, yeah. so there should be a familiarity. It should seem like a friendly thing, but then there's this er uh, undercurrent of like hatred, you know, underneath. Does mm. the person who actually ends up being the killer, is that person ever behind the mask in any of the like sequences throughout the film? No, no. no. So <laughs> the actor is not, we have a, a stunt performer who's the actual, uh, like in the big fight kill scene oh that's sure. pretty cool that's pretty cool all right I'm, i want to ask a non-spoilery and then i'm going to slip in a spoiler question which we will hold until the very end but i can't not pick your brain on it um i've been lucky enough to see the film twice the second time through it really hit me how good olivia holt does julie bowen um is that something that you really coached her on is as is, did she kind of just pick up on that it's, it's mannerisms and vocal patterns that i think she nails it's her. I mean, it's Olivia, you know, she had that in, in like day one on set, you know, and we cast Olivia first. Mm. So, you know, Julie was cast after her. So once Olivia found out it was Julie, that's what I mean about like them coming for like me thinking I got to come in and be like, okay, here's, here's some reference on Like she came down, like she knew what she was going to do. And she did it in a way that again, like, I'm glad you said on the second watch, cause it's not, it's not in the forefront of the performance, but when you get to go back, you know, there's a lot happening in this movie, as we've said, there's a lot of things at play, but then when you get to go back and kind of rewatch and like the subtleties of the yeah. performance, I think it's, it's just a testament to her. I mean, she just killed it. Yeah. When she's flirting with the boyfriend in the, in the cabin, you know, and talking about making pizza for him, I was like, God, she's doing like a dead on impersonation of Julie Bowen at that point. Um, we want to thank you so much for coming on. Obviously, this is a, a ton of fun to break down. Um, obviously, the worst thing you could ask somebody is, you know, when are you going to make another one of these? But please make another one of these. <laughs> it's just such a fun concept. Thank you so much. It was so fun to talk to you guys. Truly, honestly, I, I really enjoyed it. This episode of Real Blend is brought to you by Marvel Strike Force. 
Marvel Strike Force is a mobile squad RPG that allows you to battle with your favorite team of superheroes and supervillains in a fight to save the universe against threats like Doctor Doom and Apocalypse. Power up your favorite characters and build a team to complete missions, unlock gear and other resources, and even challenge other players in PvP modes such as Alliance War and Arena. New ways to battle with your roster are released regularly and the meta is constantly evolving. And now you can sign on for Marvel Strike Force's new Deadpool Anniversary event in order to receive a generous gift containing character shards, an anniversary diamond orb, gear, and other great items. Better yet, each week during the Deadpool anniversary, players can complete events and receive even more special rewards and skins. If you want to get in on all the fun of Marvel Strike Force, be sure to use our promo code MAXPOOL, that's M-A-X-P-O-O-L, and thank you to Marvel Strike Force for supporting the show. We want to thank Nanachka for joining the show, obviously, and our good friends at Amazon Prime who have given us the opportunity to talk about Total, Totally Killer. I want to remind you guys that that movie is available right now. Like you can literally at the end of our show, hop on over to Amazon Prime. But at the end of it, only at the end pull of it up. <laughs> yeah. Listen to the rest of our show or at least put us on in the background and just pull yeah. the volume down. If and you want to a commercial in yeah. between and then yeah, yeah, there yeah, right, break it up that way. Yeah. Um, so, it, you know, I don't want to I, I want to tell you guys a bit about Totally Killer, but I don't want to give away a lot of its surprises. Right. Um, I just I'm going to name a bunch of movies that it reminded me of. And yet it's still very fresh and familiar. Um Happy Death Day is definitely one of them. Freaky, I mentioned it has a bit of scream quality to it, but it's one of these films that name checks all these movies in them, like the the teenage girl who gets sent back in time. And, and it also is one of these movies that like right off the bat, it's like someone makes a joke of like time travel movies never make any sense. Um, so you don't get bogged down in the science of it. They're basically just like hey, we invented this time machine. It's going to send this girl back to 1980, into the 1980s. And then we're going to poke fun at the 1980s and slasher films from that era. Um, but like the Which main is a great girl, premise, like it's a great oh, it's, premise. Yeah. To the, to the point where I'm really shocked that no one has done it mm-hmm. to this point. Um, yeah. And like the girl uses back to the future as a reference point, like when she's quickly trying to explain to the cops of like, <laughs> yeah. Hey, I know that there's a serial killer. that's going to strike tonight. And they're like, how do you know this? And she's like, have you guys seen back to the future? And they're like, yeah, of course. Cause it's 1987. And that came out in 85. She's like, I'm essentially Marty McFly right now. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm trying to stop this serial killer. Um, they introduce a new uh, killer who, if you listen to the interview about now at this point, you know that the mask is not, supposed to be max headroom even though a lot of people on um online are sort of referencing that it's more just a a handsome 80s figure uh, a mix of like Kiefer sutherland and dolph lundgren although i thought it really had a max headroom look to it um and it's just it i think it delivers and gabe you got a chance to see it also i thought it delivered really big on the comedy but also on the horror slasher yeah. elements so i i want to mention i will comment on that but on the mask What's funny or ironic is the mask reminds me of Christopher Landon, who is the director of Happy Death Day. Oh, that's interesting. Like he yeah. doesn't necessarily have like slicked <laughs> yes. back black, uh, slicked back blonde hair, but he it just kind of looks like a you know a caricature mask of him. And I was like, that's really fu- like a funny coincidence. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I think that the humor was really great. I, like the comedy, comedy and a horror can be great, or it can be like it can be muddled where you're like, you don't really do the horror well and you don't really do the comedy well. So it's like, what are we doing? But I felt that the references were like really hit home um, and they weren't cheap. Like it felt 
as you were saying, like she's using them to push the plot forward and to interact with characters. And it's just, it's not just like a throwaway, like, Hey, you remember that movie or, you know, that thing. Right. Right. Um, which is really good. But the horror is really, is really great. Like it's, it's, it's violent. And I think, I think that I wasn't expecting that with the way that it started and like the right. kind of tone and um, it's, it's feels it. I don't know. This sounds like a, um, it feels like someone who's comes from TV, like the way that some of the, the shots work and everything. And I don't mean that as a, as a negative, it just has that sort of digital kind of glossy feel look. And then mm-hmm. it gets kind of really, you know, beyond TVMA. And, and uh, I thought that was really fun. I thought the running joke throughout it of, the main girl's name is uh, Kiernan Shipka, and I don't really know her from anything. Is she known for a, a big? She, I interviewed her for the uh, the was it the Chronicles of Sabrina? It was it was like yeah, the that Sabri- was her big. Okay. Her chilling the, chilling was, Adventures of Sabrina, I think. It was Sabrina, oh, okay. yeah, and it was a um, Netflix show, yeah, and and she's I mean she's probably most known, yeah, she's been in a bunch of different things, but that particularly was was the big one, I think. Yeah, that was the big one. She was so uh, she, she was in Mad Men. I think she was like uh, yeah. The kid oh, wow. or whatever in Mad Men, yeah. When she goes back to the 1980s, obviously she finds almost everything really troublesome. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. And I don't know if you noticed, Gabe, but like everyone smokes. Like yeah. she gets a ride from, <laughs> yeah. a, from a lady driving a station wagon with her kids in the back. And when she steps <laughs> out the door, this big billow of <laughs> smoke comes out. And the lady's like, thanks a lot. Drives away. And you see the two kids in the back seat of the car just inhaling all this secondhand smoke. I don't think it was that bad in the 80s, but it's very possible that that's more of a 70s. Thing, it's it's very it, it it handles it in a way that is um like honest but also i think having fun with it pointing mm-hmm. it out without it it doesn't reach a thing of like how terrible were the 80s it's just like hey while we're here let's have fun with just how different the world is uh, and i, I want to fun i want to give credit to olivia holt um who was known for cruel summer i know and she's been an actress in a couple of different things she plays the younger version of uh julie bowen who people would know from modern family and does this, as I kind of mentioned in the interview, like this spot on Julie Bowen impersonation <laughs> as she's doing it. Um, really clever use of the casting of adults and then the kids who play them in the 80s. It, it, it's great. I mean, it's really, really fun. It's if you and if you're looking for something that's new and different uh, and still delivers on October scares as everyone's sort of dialing into horror right now, I highly, highly recommend uh Totally killer, which is available on Amazon Prime, as I mentioned right now. I think it's a perfect uh, kind of October movie, like especially if you like to watch a lot of creepy horror stuff. It's like a good break from the super dreadful uh, while still feeling like you're in the season, which I think is is always fun. Without yeah, question. I, saw, I saw Saw X like right after we did the show last week. Speaking <laughs> of like horror that's like yeah. hits you on a different level. You need a break. <laughs> it, I actually thought it was the best since the original. But when I got out of that film, because I had I had watched The Exorcist that same day, The Exorcist Believer. Oh, wow. So which is my day. I just went to bed with dark thoughts that night. It was like really, but so watch some puppy I, videos or something before you go to bed. Well, I totally killer just sound, sounds like it, it's in the genre, but it knows how to have fun. And I think, you know, that's kind of, that's kind of more my speed as, as much as I respect and understand the filmmaking that went into saw X. And it's really actually really well made. And Tobin Bell is really fantastic um, in, in the role. It's just so disturbing and brutal. And I, I mean, I, I, I'm 39. I just look away, man. I don't want to see someone cutting their head off. I, mean, I, I just can't. I can't do that and stuff anymore. But 
yeah anyway so I, I just hearing what you said about totally killer it just sounds like the polar opposite of saw x and they're both like <laughs> obviously horror films yeah. uh just in terms of tone so all right so i want to get into a loki season two preview this feels like the type of show and i will say right off the bat that i really really enjoyed um the four episodes that i watched but it does not hold anyone's hand if you're not up to speed on the mcu and if you're sure. not up to speed specifically, like, I mean, I would advise anyone who's hasn't plus press played on episode one yet, which is available on Disney plus right now to go back and rewatch, you know, maybe the last two episodes of Loki, because everything that's happening in the TVA, uh, this time variance uh, authority that that. Gosh, it's even trying to describe it is very confusing. Like, I, I mean, put, I, I remember loving the ending of season one, but I don't yeah. remember. I mean, but I that's remember, a, like that's a good thing, just, though, right? Like that was our biggest issue was, are they going to have to start over with everything so that people can enjoy yeah. it? We kind of want them to be like, hey, you're along for the ride. This is for you. Yeah, yeah. for sure. Um, it's just interesting that, like, I agree with what Kevin is saying, that when the Infinity Saga was playing out, there was this anticipation for every new film that came. And I feel like with these new phases, there is still that component of you have to watch it if you want to be up to speed on what's happening. But I feel like casual fan and Kevin would I'd, I'd qualify as sure isn't dialed into, you know, the intricacies of everything that's happening. But, but that and so I got to thinking about like a show like Star Trek um, and when back when it was in its prime you know although i guess people would say star trek now is yes, is, yeah. is very very popular it's a great place yeah but but it's it's still just a show that was there for the fans you know and it yeah. feels like marvel and star wars when they kind of came back or, or became their big thing they were an event and now they're just kind of shows they're shows that come around every once in a while and they're there for the audience that wants to dial into them and i think loki i'll say this about it compared to some of the most recent mcu shows and even the movies like um ant-man and doctor strange which had limitations because of uh filming during covid or you know having to rely heavily on a lot of green screen because of protocols and things like that the production values and the sets um and the like the production design and everything that goes into the this designing of the tva is all top notch like it feels like if marvel truly pumped their brakes you know to start to say like hey we're not going to rush everything out we don't have to have three movies a year we're going to up the quality a little bit. And this is the first step toward that. It's a great step because it looks fantastic. Uh, I'm sure by now people have read and heard the Kihoi Kwan is an addition uh, as a key character to the I hate. To, oh, that was really awful. I'm sorry. About that. <laughs> but he's intended. Key, key is a key character, um, which I will not tell anybody about because it's I want you to sort of discover for yourself the way he plays that character is fantastic. I continue to love the chemistry between Owen Wilson and Tom Hiddleston. I think they have a really great rapport back and forth. And I'm super into the TVA um, nonsense. Like I, I'm into that mythos and I want to figure out the multiverse and I want to learn more about time and, and its issue uh, as they get into Kang. So um, highly recommend, but I think it's really going to work much better for people who are still on board uh, the MCU train and and don't just want to put something on as brainless in the background. How many episodes is this season in total going to be? Is it six? So total. you've seen you've seen the first two acts, so to speak of it. You've seen quite yeah. a bit of it. Yeah, I have. Okay. Um, and you're confident about you feel like it's it's set up to have to stick a good landing. 
Yes, I will say at at the end of episode four, I screamed um, at what happened. And because I realized I was not going to get to see what continued for another month and a half. (laughs) That's good. uh, Yeah. Which is frustrating. I I feel like a lot of the shows, especially early on, we kind of got in this rhythm where we would see the first few episodes, the first four episodes, and we'd go, oh, like we come up with all these theories about how it could be really great. And then it wouldn't be that. And then we would be like, oh, it kind of was just this. And I feel like there were like three or four times in a row where we were kind of like, it could be this. Yeah. Uh, without knowing, because the show was kind of not, we didn't know where they were taking it. Mm-hmm. And then it was sort of fell flat. So it's good to hear that this feels like it's got a natural build. Um, mm-hmm. And Loki was, season one was great. So I'm confident in that. I agree. And But the this goes back to what I was saying about Infinity War. I mean, Loki's death in Infinity War is an incredible sequence and it's really the 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 thing that propels Hemsworth and Thor onto you know what in, in that mission and the the full circle moment of entering Wakanda with the wrath of wanting to kill this Thanos because of what happened to Loki like I I, I just it, it again I understand the multiverse I understand the characters live and die and they come back I just it just feels it cheapens it for me. I, I like I think the Loki death in Infinity War was so impactful. And it just when I watched it again, I was like, yeah, where where where, where are we now? It's just mm-hmm. it just seems different to me. I don't know. It doesn't feel the same anymore. And and, well, and again, I know that all good things, all good things uh, come to an end at, I, at, at some point. I feel like I've said I just, this. I feel like I've said this on the show before. Um I probably said that before, too, I'm assuming. Uh, Well, I feel like I've said this on the show before, but I mean, think about how we describe movies. We describe them in decades. We're like, oh, this feels like a 70s movie. This feels like a 60s movie. This feels like an 80s movie. Like, it's not totally unheard of if we're just going to take historical, you know, sort of data and say like, wow, they were the top of the film industry for a decade. If they weren't anymore and they don't come back to that... I don't think like, you know, 20 years from now, we'd look back and go like, yeah, it's crazy. They couldn't sustain that. They'd be like, it's just another decade that was dominated by one yeah. genre or one type of yeah. thing. But That's quality just, and quantity. They're, they're still making, you know, a and lot 10 of money, years, but 10 years is kind of that that stretch. You yeah. know, it almost right. feels like each of these genres. Remember when it was found footage for the longest time? Yeah. Right. Like, yeah. Every type of horror that came out had to be that riff. You're you know, right. You get about 10 yeah. years on it and then right, everyone's because, ready for the next thing. Right, because the Infinity Saga was about 10 years, right? Essentially. Yeah, about it maybe 11. Yeah. 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 And even like, I don't see, because there's two Avengers movies on the horizon, I don't see either of them reaching the the height of public anticipation uh, Here's that those other movies had. We're more, I'm more excited about Deadpool 3 than I am anything else. Sure. Because it's unique and it's going to be R-rated and it's going to be, and again, I, we haven't seen anything of it yet. Obviously we know that they filmed and, and they they had to stop with, with the strike, but that well, is we know Jackman comes me. back, but that's another one. Like Logan was a, a, a send off to that True. character and now and, he's back. So, and that, that actually goes literally goes against what I just said about Loki and you're, and you're, but, and you're not, but wrong. Deadpool is but different. Think, you know, Deadpool plays right, Deadpool different rules. Different. It's meta. Mm-hmm. It's like, the, and you know, and, he's going to make fun of that. Like most likely they're going to be like, oh yeah, sorry. You, like, I he, still love that Deadpool two opens with him winding up the toy <laughs> of, <laughs> of Logan on the stage. That's I mean, really funny. That sounds exciting. I'm more excited about sure. Deadpool three than any Avengers movie coming out because it's going to be R 
It's going to be different. It's a new character entering this world. I mean, obviously, the character already existed at Fox, but right. it's it that to me is intriguing. That makes me go, oh, I can't wait for that. And, oh, yeah, and, yeah. and we just don't know what to expect. Deal. It's like anything with everything else. We right. feel like we we know what we're going to get. Know. I'm excited yeah. for, you know, and again, I, I didn't mean to imply that the superhero genre is dead. We're never going to see super. It's no. still going to make a lot of money for a long time. They still make Westerns. Yeah. Um, but I can't tell you how unexcited I am for Aquaman two. I saw the trailer for it the other day. I'm just like, yeah. What? Well, I was going to say like, it, see that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, the first one was awful, but it's a long <laughs> road. But to that point, I'm very excited for Superman. I'm very excited for James Gunn's vision. Do I know Absolutely. enough about anything to know if it's going to be good? Yeah, I'm excited about that. Is this their their fifteenth at bat? Maybe, but. I really like James Gunn. I really, if, if he's going to come to the table and say like, this is, this is one of the most important things I've done for me, you know, which I feel like he's said, like he's really excited about what he has to say using the character. I'm very excited for what that could be. Yeah. yeah. And the genre is not dead. Like Matt Reeves. I want to see Matt Reeves as Batman two tomorrow. You know, of course, how funny yeah, would it be? How funny yeah. would it be if, if the decade switch is now DC gets its decade? Like it's very, possible. it feels like it. I mean, I yeah. know that and, I know that obviously the, the flash and, and all of that is not been great, but between the Batman and between what the potential of James Gunn has, it feels like it, they could ride that wave for a while. And also superhero films, and, and, and it's interesting because I, I know that I'm coming off a bit more negative in terms of where I am with the genre right now, and that's just pretty much fatigue. I think that's kind but, of where most but, people are. Yeah, mm. but I'm but I'm also I'm also somebody who has a deep appreciation for that ten year period of time that mm. we had. That was a really cool moment for cinema. It was like one of the most intriguing and exciting. I, I, I Endgame might be the most anticipated film that I remember walking into in my lifetime. I mean, obviously aside from my love for Nolan and seeing all the, what movies come out, but when you spend that much time with characters and that much time building 20 plus films, and then you're going to hit a, hit an end point. Mm-hmm. It's really remarkable what they pulled off. And I think the problem with today's society is it's always, what do you have for me now? And then right now we're in a fatigue part. So you kind of forget how incredible that 10 years really was. And I mm-hmm. think that when I watched Infinity War the other day, it was like, man, I I just miss that feeling. I miss that honest it, that, that it is, emotion. It is funny. I thought this the last time I started to rewatch the MCU films because it doesn't feel like that long ago. And I'm I'm nearly thirty, so I'm getting to an age where like nostalgia is starting to become a real thing for me. I have nostalgia from <laughs> yeah. when I was like a kid, but I'm I know I know <laughs> I'm sorry, Sean. No, but so Sean and I know I'm, I turned forty next year. Man. I know, like, it, it, that but stuff I'm hits, saying for, I'm saying for me, I'm I'm having the experience of like I was a basically an adult when I saw that. Oh, that's weird for me to say it like yeah. I have a nostalgic thing from when I wasn't necessarily just a kid and rewatching mm. the early MCU films or really any of that first saga. Uh, it's funny how much enjoyment I get out of, or it's amusing to me how much enjoyment I get out of just living in like the, Oh, remember those days? Like that nostalgic mm. little mm-hmm. feeling. It, it Dude, feels like it happened so fast. One of my favorite real blend moments ever. I know then we'll move on. Um, was Sean and I sitting down with the Russo brothers the Monday after Endgame opened? Yeah, that was great. And like, like, like the, the Sean had come up to DC because I was doing a Q and A with Joe and Anthony at uh, at Lockheed Martin IMAX here in DC, and, and it was an, an amazing crowd. Lots of real blend listeners were there. But Sean, I mean, like that morning because that movie had just come out. No one had seen it until the premiere. And it was riding this massive high from over the weekend. And Sean and I are just sitting in this green room 
with the two filmmakers who were involved. It was so well, Sean and I were I'll like never exhilarated. Forget, we got the first inter- spoiler interview with them. Yeah. Because yeah. you can go back and listen to it. They say like, it's so weird to be able to talk about <laughs> these details, you know, because we talked about um, Robert Downey Jr. filming the reshoot of him snapping his fingers on the same stage where he auditioned for Iron Man, like that full circle Wild. moment. And, you know, shit like that just gives you such goosebumps of like what they yeah. were able to accomplish. So yeah, go terrific, back and listen to that interview, interview if you get a chance, because like that to me, and I kind of want to listen to it. I don't listen, go back and listen to a lot of my own stuff, but like that to me is a time capsulation of the energy of what that moment was like. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I bet you if you listen to that interview, Sean and I are probably like, geeking oh. out like our voices are probably like super high pitched we're like oh my god this is because I mean they were telling us stuff that no one had heard yet and no one yeah. had we were talking about like how they, and they entered New York and how they refilmed those sequences it was wild man yeah it was yeah, very so. fun all right well nostalgia is still a thing at the uh hollywood box office and the studios are still trying to capitalize on what was old and make it new again and that's how we get to the Exorcist Believer, uh, which Kevin got a chance to see. And Kevin, I'm not going to sugarcoat it. The reviews dropped earlier this week and they were not good. Um, and one of the things that I saw in a lot of the reviews was that Ellen Burstyn is like severely misused in this. Um, so I just want to get your impression of did you like it more than the general consensus? And did you think that it was worth it to bring Burstyn back for this? Yeah, so I'm I'm I have a mixed bag reaction to this. I don't think it's as bad as the reviews are saying it is, but it's definitely not great, and it's definitely okay. not even good. It's it, 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 but it does have some promise to it that I want to give David Gordon Green credit for. Um, first of all, his filmmaking career has been really fascinating to me. I was looking at his filmography. Obviously, you you do Pineapple Express, you do Your Highness, you do. Uh, you know, he did Eastbound and Down episodes. He, you know, the, like, and one of the movies that he did that I thought was great was Stronger. He did Stronger, which was great. Which oh, Jake I Jones love Hall. that movie. Yeah, and then he dived into these these Halloween films, right? He did all three of them, and then and then um, and I've said this in the show before. I think the first Halloween movie that he made would have been the most perfect bookend ever. It was called Halloween. Yep. You bring the three generations of Strodes, you kill Mike Myers and then Michael Myers, and then you're done. Halloween, the middle one and the third one were two of the worst movies I've I've seen in a long time. They were they were awful. Um, And and I just genuinely found that to be a business decision that obviously made money. But the storytelling wise, it just didn't work. So now we're back with David Gordon Green with The Exorcist Believer. Um, And the idea of bringing Ellen Burstyn back is obviously very intriguing. Um, I still I still have nightmares about her performance in Requiem for a Dream. Um, She's really an amazing actor and obviously great in the first Exorcist, the real William Friedkin film. Um, This movie has a really strong first half. I actually thought it built character really well. This is not really that scary of a film. Um, I found it a lot more psychological. Um, I kind of wanted more horror and scares, especially from an exorcist film, because the first one is arguably next to the shining, the scariest movie ever made. Um, and still, so still today, I mean, the practical effects in that film and, and the performances and everybody in that movie is incredible. Um, this is definitely a step up from the last two Halloween films he directed for sure. Um, the filmmaking is really solid. It's shot. Well, uh, I, I think that the movie has promise, but the third act I just thought was really bad. Like mm-hmm. it just, 
the movie didn't know where it wanted to go. It, it just felt too easy. It didn't feel natural. It just felt like they were plugging pieces into a puzzle. Ellen Burstyn, I, I, I agree. Um, she has one scene that is genuinely terrifying that I do think was a really well made scene. It's pretty shocking. Um, but overall, I just think they rushed that. There was a lot. There was something there. And you never when you watch a movie sometimes and, and, and there's something there that, you know, could have been good had they edited it a certain way or shot it a certain way or wrote it better. Um, it, the idea, the seed, like it sounded like it was a good idea. And then it's just the execution's not great. Um, one thing I do want to point out, and this is super nerdy, but I do find this really cool. And this is kind of subconscious, but I think it's interesting. Um, David Gordon Green's really interesting about details. Uh, if you look at the first Halloween film, Carpenter's film, um, I bring up aspect ratio a lot, but I, th- there's a point to this. That film was shot in two, three, nine. Um, so it's a more of like a wider aspect ratio. Um, the one eight five is more of a tall. So when David Gordon Green did his three Halloween films, he kept Carpenter's original uh, aspect ratio throughout, which is really cool choice. It, it keeps the world. It's the world you're in. And it's not too much of a jarring. Not many people would notice it, but it, it, it is psychologically and subconsciously something that you think of, because you if you ever watch the first Halloween, which everyone has, that looks a certain way because it's 239. So when you watch his new ones, it kind of feels like you're in the same world. He did the same thing for The Exorcist. I thought that was really cool. Like Freakin' shot 185, which is in the more taller ratio. And he continued that ratio here with Believer. I thought that was a really cool thing. And then they obviously... He brought in he brought in two composers. They do still work with the theme, which is really cool, but they play it in their own way. Um, so I, I, it's a frustrating review because I found the filmmaking interesting. I just didn't find the, the film overall. I walked out, went, how did they just they, they, it was basically like they were carrying the ball in a, on, a, on, a, on a punt return and they were getting they were going towards, the, you know, to get a touchdown. And then they just fumbled the ball at like the, you know, at the 10 yard line or something well, like that. It just it just felt it just felt like it just missed it missed a beat. Um, I haven't it wasn't seen that it, scary. It wasn't that I scary. Don't, I don't think that bringing Alan Burstyn back has the same punch as you bringing back Jamie Lee Curtis for a Halloween film. You know, well, it like, doesn't, and it, and it feels ex- forced. Don't you guys feel like the, the exorcist <clears throat> franchise is, is a little muddled because the exorcism films that are not the exorcist franchise, yeah. like exorcism films is like its own genre. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, that yeah, yeah. I don't know. I mean, of course you're, you're playing to the horror audience, which is a, which is Just a, had the Pope's exorcist. Yeah. Yeah. Most recently. Um, yeah. It's I a just, huge I, part of I just wonder what the sort of, this is a this is a boring word, but like brand recognition, franchise recognition yeah. that people are going to come in with even versus right. a Halloween with a mask and all that thing versus like, oh, it's just one of those exorcism movies. Right. So uh, what's interesting is as we're talking, I'll, I'll just I'll give credit to discussing film on Twitter for this. Uh, the film is tracking with a 30 plus million dollar domestic opening. Now, the okay. film, obviously, Jason Blum works for cheap, uh, always mm-hmm. has made uh, lower budget films. But this movie actually cost, according to this, 30 million. Um, but an article I sent you guys before the before the show started was that um, I'm going to read this directly. The film cost 30 million to make and they bought the rights to make a trilogy for 400 million. That's from discussing film. So. That's a lot of money Ooh. to spend uh, wow. for the rights. So you're probably um, looking at after the production of three films over half a billion dollars before before marketing. Holy God, you better connect. And the rights themselves were 400 million, according to this. But, the you know, so they'll make their production budget back for sure. But when you're balancing the books, so yeah, <laughs> yeah, like you still pay. Like, now, wow. you guys want to know why why the next one's going to make a billion dollars, though? 
Why? Max Monsito is coming back? No, because the, the sequel to The Exorcist Believer is called, apparently, The Exorcist Deceiver. It, are you joking or being serious? <laughs> That's what I'm seeing on, on uh, oh, ID. I, <laughs> and I'm assuming the trilogy real. is going to be The Exorcist Receiver, and it's about a football player that gets a <laughs> demon. Kev just used a football analogy to, Did you? Oh, yeah. to sell the movie. Yeah. Kev, does it, uh, without giving anything away, does it tease where the story's going? When the film ended, I did not feel any particular push towards uh, a continued story, story that I'm okay. particularly interested in. Yeah, it, okay. it seemed like it, it it ended on such a note that could move, but it wasn't. Is it set up to be like a not an anthology, but kind of like it's going to be a new story, but just with like one character in a different setting? I'm or? assuming. So for, for for people who are, are I haven't seen the trailers for this, this the reason why this one's a little more unique is it, it's it's two young girls who have been possessed. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, basically the parents of those two young girls essentially try to get them exercised. Um, and, you know, it's a basic plot. But but having two of them, I don't I don't remember if the other Exorcist movies I've only ever seen the first one. I've always heard the third one's great. Um, but do they have multiple the people too? Possessed? I, yeah. They branch. I, I know the second one follows Father Damien, who's from the first one. Um, right. And then I don't know where they go after that. But like, it's not mm. like a franchise that you would think that's like fully connected with like the, the same characters kind of passed through from one to one. So I want to transition over to uh, a story that Kevin's going to tell. Because every once in a while through this work, we get to interview people who we um, are huge fans of that are not connected to film at all. Uh, Jake, if Jake were going to be here, I wanted him to tell the story of getting to go to Carnegie Hall. Uh, He went to Carnegie Hall as part of the press tour for Maestro. And that's an opportunity that you wouldn't assume that you would get doing the movie beat. But when they do something for a film, uh, you get a chance to to go and experience something really fun. Uh, Tom DeLong, who is a hero of, of both Kevin's and mine, huge fan, huge, huge fan. Obviously, Massive. it's from Blink-182, Angels and Airwaves, he did Boxcar Racer um, with Travis <laughs> Barker, and um, and he's been on the UFO beat for a really long time. <laughs> um, and, you know, has been vindicated a bit uh, from some of the information sure, that's been coming sure. out. And, Aliens uh, exist, man. He wrote that in 99. And- yes, and he, uh, you know, gets name dropped by the people who were testifying before Congress because of information that he is either pushed for or so he made a movie called Monsters of, uh, of California. And if I've only seen the trailer, I have a screener link for it. Um, I thought the I thought it looked really good. I thought it looked I dug it. Yeah. Gabe and I were talking about the fact that like you, you almost expected it to be this sort of rough, you know, super eight type thing of like teenagers yeah. who stumble upon information about aliens as they're figuring out what happened to one of the main characters missing fathers. But, but Kev, more importantly than that, I, I want to know just what it was like talking to Tom DeLong. Like he's in the middle of Blink's European tour. Uh, they, they are quite possibly, I mean, obviously Taylor Swift is Taylor Swift, but they are having a moment right now. They're back and, and big with their album on the way out. So what was it like getting a chance to, to interview him for this? Well, yeah, well, first of all, yeah, and I'll talk about the movie as well, but Blink, uh, Sean and I have talked about Blink a lot. I've seen Blink probably five or six times. I just saw them recently in D.C. Uh, I've seen Plus 44 live. I've seen, you know, it, it, like I've, I've been such a big fan of just the whole Blink family for a long time. And I know Plus 44 was Mark and Travis. Um, Whatever they but, all and, go to do, I tend to follow them with it, you know, like, yeah, 100%. if they're involved, if one of the one of the members is involved, I follow them. Yeah. And so. 
obviously with the strike, I've been trying to find other routes to do interviews. And I know that he had this film coming out. And so I reached out to his publicist and it was like a few weeks ago. And they were like, yeah, well, he's on tour right now. He might not be available up like until like October 2nd to do press, but he's going to be international at that point. I think he was in Portugal when we spoke. Um, And it was a whole thing. Originally it was just going to be like an audio thing. And then I was like, well, can we try for video? Because there could be like Wi-Fi and, and you know where he's at. And so we ended up doing the interview like at eight 20 in the morning Eastern. And he had a show like hours later in Portugal that night. So, mm-hmm. you know, with the time difference, it worked out. And part of me, I was, you know, I'm such a big fan of, of his music and, and I, I own all the vinyl for Blink-182. I mean, it's a, it's a, their music hits me on a level that I can't even explain, you know, a lot of their songs, their self-titled record to me is my favorite just because it feels really cinematic. There's a lot of great storytelling in there with the letters they're reading from the war and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so those, that album really struck me. And then Angels and Airwaves was a huge band for me as well, just because they're, they're hugely cinematic. Also, the way that they compose them. their music is like, it feels like it belongs with some type of sci-fi epic film. Right. And every time I would, you know, anytime I listen to Angels and Airwaves, it I'm I'm Angels and Airwaves kind of puts me into a cinematic mood. Mm. Um and you know, their drummer for the Angels and Airwaves actually scored the, the film, um which is really cool. So the movie's called Monsters of California. And so I'm I'm at work and I'm like there's no way Tom DeLonge is actually going to pop up on my Zoom here. <laughs> and, and and keep in mind, we we've all we've interviewed really famous people in our lives, but when yeah. you interview a rock star that you've been watching and listening to, since you were 15 years old. I mean, I remember when What's My Age Again video premiered. I remember buying Enema of the State with my dad in San Francisco. Uh, we were on vacation at the time. I remember when you take off your pants and jacket when that album was released, they had like three different versions that you could get. One was like the Tom, Mark and Travis version or whatever. And I remember like it was so cool if you got this version or that version. And then the Mark, Tom and Travis live show. And there's so many aspects of their of that their career. Phenomenal. That I'm, that I'm so great. I've been, I listened to it on vinyl last night. I mean, it was like, it, it felt like I was there at the show. Um, so DeLong, Tom DeLong pops up on my Zoom screen and it was just wild. Like, I, I kind of like, I, I told myself before, I don't want a fanboy. Um, but I just, it was one of those things, dude, I've been trying to buy his new Stratocaster. They released these Tom DeLong Stratocasters um, like a couple months ago from Fender, like a reissue from like years ago. Is it and brown they have, like, with the stripe or is it like white no. like the one he's playing now? They have it, no. It's this. It's the strats. So it's like it's. They had a yellow, black, blue, and a green one, a surf okay. green. And I've been trying to get it for months, and it's been sold out like crazy. And I and I told Tom DeLong at the end of the interview, I was like, dude, please tell Fender to put more of those out. And he said something along the lines of, he goes, crazy how much those are selling. He goes, they have Kurt Cobain and Jimi Hendrix versions that are still available, but mine for some reason is like <laughs> selling out. Yeah. And to Sean's point, they're having a big moment right now. Um, and and so weirdly enough, when I got off the call. I checked the website one more time. I've been my 25th time checking it and there was one available and I nailed it. I got Get it. Out of um, here. So I thought you were going to tell me he sent you one, which would have been no, awesome. No, 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 That would have been awesome. No, no, I, I did. I <laughs> did. I did crazy. purchase it. That would have been cool. Um, so he comes up on the screen and yeah, it was, it was wild, man. It was Tom DeLong. It was this guy that I've seen in concert so many times. Like there's a difference in talking to actors than a rock star. A rock mm-hmm. star is a really, and I had just seen them. Sean and I talked about them all the time and when he popped up he's a really fascinating guy and if you get a chance it's just a 10 minute interview it's on youtube um he's really fascinating in terms of his film look for it in the description or in the little Mm -hmm. 
notifications. Here. He's really fascinating guy about the way because when you approach songwriting versus filmmaking and also if you haven't seen the trailer for Monsters of California, he uses like a really interesting version of Aliens Exist in yeah. the trailer. Mm-hmm. Um, and so for people who aren't familiar with the film, like Sean basically described, it's a group of like teenagers essentially who are dealing with some paranormal activity of some sort uh, in Southern California. It has like a Stranger Things vibe to it. Richard Kind is great in this movie. Like cool it's like got him. an amazing performance. And Casper uh, from uh, uh, Starship Troopers. Yeah. 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 He's really, he's really good in it too. It was kind of like a whole throwback. Um, the movie works. I, I, and there's like three angels and airwaves songs in the film. There's like a Tom DeLonge song in there as well. I think from his solo album to the stars. I think, okay. I think that's what it was. Um, it's available in theaters and uh, select theaters. And it's also available on demand. Like if you have Apple or iTunes, I dug it, but I also dug it because I was watching it, thinking about Tom directing it and like yeah. what, how, how like this music musician that I've been following for years and angels and airwaves, like he, that he's behind the camera telling the story. And it just felt different that way. And what's great about it. One of the answers that he gave me, we were talking about like, cause he, cause he uses score and soundtrack in the film and his drummer from angels and airwaves uh, scored the film. It was an but awesome he, drummer. I think he, he drummed for Nine Inch Nails. I think, it, I think he was the drummer probably. for Nine Inch Nails. He's, he's, he's amazing. And uh, but in total Tom DeLong fashion, like he throws in like a lot of the immature jokes in the interview. The interview is pretty not, not safe for work. with A lot of like bad language. in it. But it, it was just funny to hear him throw out the jokes that I've seen him throw out sure. on stage so many times. Um, yeah, I think I, I, listen, this is coming from a, a very personal place for him. He's very passionate about this subject matter. So when you're, and when someone's passionate about what they're doing, and they tell a story about what they're passionate about. The passion comes through. It's there. Mm-hmm. Tom's voice is all over the movie. It's it, it's 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 you know, it's one of those things. And the kids are great in it. The, the cast is really solid. I mean, is it the best movie I've ever seen? No. But I mean, but if you're a Blink fan and you and you and you are familiar with Tom's work and Angels and Airwaves, it's right up. It's, this is I, this is I mean, it's catnip. It's like it's like it's literally I like, what you know, yeah, you got the and, chance to do this, man. I'm so jealous. Yeah. And and uh, last thing I'll say about it is this, like, like I one of the things I love about like Tom is, first of all, like they're great writers. Right. I mean, and, and they're dealing with thematics that we can all relate to, as I said. But if you're it, I just genuinely it was an amazing opportunity. I was so happy I got a chance to just talk to the guy. Um, And, and at the end of the day, I, I am a fan. But it was it was just like it was just weird to see Tom DeLong on my Zoom screen. And he was in Portugal and he took the time to do it before his show. Um, so I'm excited. And the guitar comes tomorrow. So I'm going to learn some Blink stuff over the weekend. So uh, awesome. but yeah, the Send movie's pictures, out this weekend. Please. Yeah, if you're a fan, check it out. I mean, it, it's definitely and Sean and I have shared our love for the band over the years. And, and uh, where is it available yeah, again? It, um, so you can see it in select theaters. I think across the country, it's playing in like certain theaters. Just uh, if you go to his uh, Instagram or Twitter, you can find a list. If not, it's playing on demand. So if you have Apple TV or cool. iTunes or things like that, you can get it there. Um, but yeah, no, he was, it was really special talking to him. So. All right. Well, let's get back to time travel movies. I want to ask everybody in the comments down below. Uh, tell me your all time favorite or best even time travel movie not named Back to the Future. I'm going to take Back to the Future out of the conversation. Um, any any of the three, I'm taking them out of the conversation. Yeah. Give me your best time travel film that's outside of that franchise. You can even use uh, Totally Killer if you want to. You can follow us online uh, at Jake's Takes, at Kevin McCarthy TV, at Sean underscore O'Connell, at Gabe Kovach, and at Real Blend. It's Kevin McCarthy TV. 
He is not the Speaker of the House. <laughs> Send him your Blink recommendations. Not anymore, Sean. Not anymore. Very true. And uh, we'll be back next week with a brand new interview. And as Kevin said, we are pursuing some really exciting interviews uh, as we get into the award season. So make sure you keep it right here on Real Blend. We'll talk to you guys uh, very, very soon. Pay your actors. Pay your actors. The man who moved the, the earth. earth. Oh, wow. Beautiful. We're shuffling it around. Yeah, why not? Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.